Welcome to day seven of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, day seven at the New York Film Festival. And here we are with our daily edition from the festival. I'm Eugene Hernandez, and I'm here with my colleagues, Christine Mendoza, our director of education, and Brian Brooks, who's been a longtime consultant to the organization. Um, They're both here with me today because we're talking about the Artist Academy. Welcome, Christine and Brian. Thank you. Uh, the Artist Academy is a program that we've been doing here at Film at Lincoln Center for nine years, um, and it's part of a group of academies. So um, maybe well, maybe just to kind of start the conversation, uh, maybe, Christine, you could kind of talk uh, with us a little bit about the overall academy program. And then in a minute, I want to hear from Brian about some of the some of the practical aspects of like what actually happens during this academy. It all takes place during the New York Film Festival. Sure. So during the New York Film Festival, we have two academies happening, the Critics Academy and the Artist Academy. Um, And both of these academies are opportunities for people from all over, not only the United States, not only New York, but the United States and the rest of the world to come together. We have a group of 10 critics and a group of 30 Artist Academy members this year, and they're really having some really critical, important conversations of what it's like to be women and people of color in the in the critics industry and also in the um, as filmmakers. And just speaking to the Artist Academy in particular, um, it, you, every year, or like for the past nine years, it's been a group of about twenty-five to thirty emerging artists. But you know, they've they've had shorts. Some of them have had features. Few of them maybe have had um, films that have gone out into you know in 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 maybe limited release in theaters, and they come together um, and it's sort of in the spirit of collaboration. Actually, it's absolutely in the spirit of collaboration and the celebration of art. And in doing that, they talk to each other and bond, which is what we really want. Um, but then they also get to meet people who are a bit more veteran um, and speak in a very informal, off the record. Yeah. Um, and we have like an amazing, great you know, selection of people who come in and chat with them. Eugene, maybe just tell me a bit more, just remind me about who came in this year. Yeah, so, so that, you know, as, as Brian mentioned, we try to create a program in which these artists can can connect with and learn from different mentors. On the, on the first day, um, as an example, uh, we had producer Emma Tillinger-Koskoff. And Emma not only was the producer of The Irishman, uh, but she also produced Joker, which is a movie that uh, that played last night, and we're going we're to actually listen to the um, Q and A from that uh, screening at the uh, in, a, in a minute on this podcast. Um, and she also is executive producer of Uncut Gems. And so, for example, Emma was able to talk with the Academy for about an hour about just not only her career path, but um, some of the different hurdles and obstacles that she's faced on that path. Um, As Brian mentioned, all of the conversations are off the record, so I can't say too much about what we discussed. But um, I will say... It's great what happens off the record. (laughs) I will say, yes, I will say that that honestly, um, Emma, and then later that same day, uh, Sheila Nevins, who's the head of MTV Documentary, uh, formerly the head of HBO Documentary, uh, both of these women who who are amazing and accomplished leaders in their field um, were very, um, Christine, you were there. They were very candid um, about the highs and lows, the obstacles and the achievements that they've faced in their career. And I think that um, they were very, very transparent, very real, very honest mm-hmm. about what they deal with in navigating the industry. 
Yeah, and I think it's just really refre- refreshing for the Artist Academy participants to sort of hear from the person what, why they make some of the decisions that they made professionally, of course, how they're feeling about those decisions that they made, and just sort of relating to them on a personal level where a lot of times they don't even have that space to have those conversations. Right. I mean, it's great because they have the opportunity. It's not just moderated, like, panel-style conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, they are engaged one-on-one. I mean, not really one-on-one. It's like group on one. Um, but, you know, they can just shout out questions and question and, and get responses. And it's just, it's very candid. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's an informal chat. And, 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 but in the celebration of artistry and collaboration. Having the private environment, having the off-the-record environment, I think allows for that those kind of candid, revealing, and honest moments to occur, I guess I would say. You know. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Eugene and Brian, as, we're, as we sort of plan these academies where we have a larger goal in mind where we're helping to support the next projects, but also filling in a cultural deficit, which we have found is pretty apparent in the, in the film industry. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, for us, meeting with these two uh, leaders in the industry on the first day was one way to do that. On the second day, having an opportunity to to grapple with um, the, the the notion and the questions of art versus commerce, and when Brian and I were putting this this these these conversations together, really contrasting the commercial for profit sector and world with the not for profit, and so on the one hand, you know, so like. Brian and I curated this this, sec- this session, which is more commercial, and I uh, asked a lot of questions about the commercial film business. But then in the second half of the afternoon, we had a conversation more about institutions, and we had the executive directors of a bunch of different not-for-profit organizations. And Christine, with her education background, was able to ed- was able to engage that group with questions that were on the kind of the less commercial side, right? I mean. The, that was kind of the the, the, the the dichotomy that we tried to explore. Yeah, absolutely. And and both of the sort of for-profit and non-profit have so much to offer in terms of content and sort of behind-the-scenes decision-making. Yeah. So I think both were equally valuable and really interesting because they happen one right after another. So to be able to compare those two worlds, I think, was just valuable to have that experience. But one thing I was also just going to say, just them bonding together. I was talking with them, a few of them, after, you know, during we had a... Uh, a little get together with some wine and some <laughs> hors d'oeuvres. Um, but they said that some of the best thing moments that they had were just mm. bonding together, getting to know each other. Yeah. And and then they also met uh, Artist Academy members from previous years. And they were saying that they still talk together and they still collaborate. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, this is a dynamic program that, you know, while the program itself is, is three and a half days, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't end there. You know, mm-hmm. their relationships are formed and that this is a catalyst. It's worth it's worth mentioning and it's worth reiterating that point that, that you're making, Brian, because um, this program is, it continues to evolve year after year. We, we take feedback from the participants and we, we tweak the program a little bit. And I think, you know, it, it looks and feels different from, you know, from year to year. Yeah. But on the final day, we had... Um, 
kind of the theme of collaboration, the theme of kind of sustainability of a career and cultivating and nurturing a creative career. And so we had a number of different artists and filmmakers, uh, Tamara Jenkins and Alex Ross Perry, who were here last year with films, uh, Nanfu Wang, who's who's releasing her documentary out in the, into the world right now. And then on that final session, folks who have been part of these various academy programs from Film at Lincoln Center over the nine years or almost... Uh, almost 500 people have participated in one of one of these three programs over nine years. And what we hope, our goal is to, sure, impart knowledge and information and share um, share a conversation about what's happening right now. But if if the only takeaway is that that uh, folks in these three programs connect with each other, I think that will be the the tremendous kind of success. And when we see artists from individual years connecting not only with each other, but but helping and, and share information. There's so much information and so much um, context that comes from our social networks. And um, with these programs, um, we hope to, to instigate and provoke stronger social networks among groups of people that haven't always had the kind of access to the industry, to film criticism, to um, to creativity, and 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 to be enabled to tell stories, um, and hopefully they can they can create a network among each other that will have a long lasting kind of impact on the film community and film culture going forward. And I, I do want to make sure to mention that these three programs are part of an overarching uh, initiative or or part of the organization that includes our education program. And Christina, I thought it might be interesting for you to just share a little bit with our listeners about uh, what the organization is doing also in other areas of education and the, the other um, audiences there and other folks that we're reaching. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, um, aside from our academies program, we have an educational screening series that we are launching. We've been doing educational screenings just, you know, just throughout the history of, of film at Lincoln Center as an organization. We're formalizing this a little bit now and we're really selecting films that are reflecting the New York City public school population. We're looking for themes that are showing um, young people of color or, or, or young people in a positive light, really celebrating the communities that they're coming from and having really raw conversations with the directors and, and the cast during that time. Um, and those happen throughout film festivals throughout the year, um, key festivals throughout the year. Aside from that, we have our core program, which is a visual literacy curriculum that we bring into public schools throughout New York City. Right now, we're working with third and fourth graders at select schools on the Upper West Side. And we're also in the High School for Media and Communications, which is a really vibrant school um, in Inwood, Manhattan, on the tip of Manhattan. Um, and through our visual literacy curriculum, the young people who are participating are making short, silent films. So they're deconstructing films. They're learning to read the film language. They're understanding shot compositions. And when you see these films together, how it tells a different story. They're understanding how um, facial expressions um, really help to develop a, an emotion. Um, so it's that social emotional development that they're also getting aside from the art and the language. Um, so they really leave there with a short silent film that is getting screened at the Walter Reed Theater and really starting from a really er early age to develop their portfolio to be successful in the film world themselves. So That's it's a really awesome. great dynamic program. That's great. <laughs> It's 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 a it's a terrific program because it's in the DNA, it comes from the very DNA of the organization itself and when we look back at the the organization film society of Lincoln Center before any of us were here um, 
the education program that the organization presented decades ago was the same one that brought Martin Scorsese, our opening night director, to high schools in the New York City area. Um, so it's, a, it's in that kind of tradition that we try to continue these programs that, that both connect with uh, younger audiences and storytellers at a, at a at a at the very very beginning of their education process, and then through these academies supporting uh, folks who work in all areas of film culture and who are exploring all, all areas of film culture, at kind of a crucial stage where where networking and information are so vital to being able to empower folks to to make movies that we can then show at Film at Lincoln Center or at the New York, New York Film Festival in the future. Absolutely. And at the same time, broadening our New York City audience. So having sort of a visually literate audience coming to our theaters, right, who can really critically analyze and ask some difficult questions to the filmmakers who come through our doors. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's all part of um, some of the programs we do here at Film at Lincoln Center that that may be less visible on a day to day basis, but are still going on throughout not only the New York Film Festival um, this year and and uh, also throughout the organization on a year round basis. And, and a perfect example of uh, someone who is going from school right into a professional career is probably Emma Tillinger-Koskoff, who we mentioned earlier. Um, she was a, a producer who decided to forego college and went directly from graduating high school to working on set. And she basically kept on working on films and has been ever since. Um, she is one of the folks who joined us on stage to talk about her new movie, Joker, along with uh, filmmaker Todd Phillips, actor Joaquin Phoenix, and others. So let's take a listen to that conversation now, and we'll be back tomorrow for more from the New York Film Festival. Hi, Larry. How you doing? How are you? It's good to see you. I'm doing well. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for everything. It's really good to see you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We haven't seen each other in a while. Thank God. <laughs> Except for last night. Congratulations. Great start. Thank you. Great start. <laughs> um, great films spark conversations. For Todd, for Emma, for Joaquin. Uh, back when you first started talking about this movie. Um, did you imagine, what did you imagine the response to this film would be? I mean, it's a complicated movie, and I said it before, I think it's okay that it's complicated. I didn't imagine the level of discourse that it sort of reached in the world, honestly. Um, I, I think it's interesting, and I think it's okay that, um, that it sparks conversations and that there are debates around it. My, my thing has always been, you know, the the film is the statement, and it, it's great to talk about it, but it's much more helpful if you've seen it, you know, and, and so much, <laughs> there's been, it sounds insane, but there's there's been so much conversation around the movie by people that haven't seen the movie. There have been think pieces written by people that say, I haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to see the movie, I don't need to see the movie, and then they write two pages about the movie, and you're like... Okay, so that I didn't expect, I, you know, but, but you know, it, it, it um, I don't know that it's hurt the movie and probably has helped and it's good to have people talking, but I didn't, ex to answer your question simply, no, I didn't expect that, yeah. See the movie and then... See the movie and then, yeah. <laughs> Seems Emma, logical. Yeah. Sure. Um, 
Uh, I didn't really. I, I don't know that I really think about what's going to happen in the movie once you get done making it. Yeah. Um, but I know that I, I don't know if I told you this, Todd, but I gave all my sisters the script and my mom, <laughs> my whole family read it. Uh, and, and we had a lot of discussion about it. So I, I guess I imagine that, um, you know, it, there were no easy answers. Yeah. And um, I think there's a lot of questions that it poses. And, and, and so it makes you think. So I, I guess I, I anticipated some of it. Yeah. Is that a common practice for you, the circle of trust to the sisters and mama? Um, not really. <laughs> but this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they have, but it's, it's, it's not a standard practice. But um, yeah, on this one, we were all together at the time when I was kind of um, making the decision. Yeah. And I was curious what they thought. Was it a hard decision to make? I can answer. Guessing there were some no, conversations. I, I mean, in in some ways, no. In some ways, it was a, it was a great script and a yeah. great character, yeah. um, and that was undeniable. Yeah. Um, but I think it's probably always a bit of a process for me. Yeah. Um, to to commit to something. Yeah. Emma, same question. Easy decision for me to make. I was all in. Why? This one. This one. No brainer. The script was amazing. Yeah. Um. All of it. No, I, I, I feel. So yeah, Emma was somebody I went to. Sorry, but I early on, I really wanted her on board early. Um, Emma has amazing taste. Emma has amazing contacts, relationships. I think I went to Emma before anybody on here, except Larry, who I work with on all my movies. But um, I think you were the first person. So it was really key for me to start with uh, Emma. And she, she called me pretty quickly, loving it, but. Right away. But okay. I guess his question was, did you expect this level of... She got out of it, man. Why? I know. Back I mean, I... But I was curious. I'm actually curious. <laughs> I was curious of the answer from you. No, you just answered it for me. I cannot do it. Thank you for always saving me in these Q&As because I, you know, thank God I do these with Todd because he answers beautifully for me. So <laughs> no, I didn't mean to There you that. go. <laughs> We're here at the New York Film Festival. Todd, uh, what are some of the films and and who are some of the filmmakers that, that inspire you or have inspired you uh, over the years, over the course of your career? I mean, you know, when I was younger, really the movies I grew up on were comedies. Ivan Reitman, John Landis, those are the movies that got me cl clearly how I started in. As I got older and and started studying film, even at NYU and even a little bit before that, and discovering, you know, the great movies of the of the seventies, the movies that really, um, you know, touched people in a way. And it was really Sidney Lumet, and of course Martin Scorsese. There's great influences in this movie of King of Comedies, obvious, Taxi Driver, Dog Day Afternoon. These are movies we all talked about on this stage, Larry and Mark Friedberg and I and Mark Bridges. Um, referencing um, those films, we we talked about Cuckoo's Nest a lot. We talked about um, oh, there was one that I said. Um, what was the one? Uh, why am I? Oh, Network, of course. We talked about Network. I mean, we just these these are movies that I discovered more in my early twenties that just changed me. But all movies that we were referencing throughout making this, you know, of course, Martin Scorsese is the obvious one. Emma works with Marty for the last. 10, 12 years? 17. 17, wow. 
okay. Um, but anyway, so it, it just was a great, a great fit. Um, Emma, excuse me, Emma for us. And, and then Mark who grew up here in New York and the, the, the visual references that we had for this movie from other movies, from photographs, from all that, Mark and I would just sort of pour over and, and Larry too. Well, it's a, it's a great um, lead-in. I'm going to get back to the title character in a minute, but um, Joker's Gotham is a representation of 80s New York, and it's actually such an important character in the film. So um, for Mark and for Larry, can you talk about some of the aspects or the elements of creating this character, creating this character of the city, um, and some of the aspects that you that you sought to explore in developing it. In a lot of ways, this Gotham is uh, a manifestation of Joker, or at least uh, Joker's a manifestation of Gotham. It it made him, it forces him to, to react the way he does, and uh, uh, we wanted to create a synergy between his emotion and the, the discord of the city, the sort of visual dissonance uh, of the place. It's, on the other hand, also a place, uh, unlike the city now, which is getting so scrubbed, that also strangely has life. Um, so in a weird way, it, through all of its uh, traumas and all of its, uh, uh, all of its failings, it's also a place where there's expression on the walls, where people are out in the street. And uh, so all of those things, I think, uh, were both a background, but also in a, in a lot of ways a foreground to to the character itself. Can I speak? I can speak. All right. um, he's he's a hard man. Um, yeah, for me, I grew up over the George Washington Bridge in a little uh, in a town called Teaneck, New Jersey. So, as somebody who went into the city and snuck in on buses and stuff in the early 80s had a very vivid memory of it. So a lot of it was trying to transport myself. And so much of the movie and the look of the movie is more about, we discovered, Todd and I, often that we would look at these references and some were like literally anthropological, like what did the city, because of course it's Gotham, but it's also we were shooting in New York and New Jersey and what did it look like back then? How do you get to some of that just historical references and that? But in terms of the look of the movie, I found that we would reference those things, Dog Day, Network, but every single time we'd reference them photographically, we would go, yeah, but it's not this movie. It's like, it, the idea of it was more of an influence than the actual like look and feel of it. And so for me, what we were really trying to do was almost transport us to a memory for me personally. And so what is that memory of what it was when I got robbed on 42nd Street? Like, what did that feel like? What did the city feel like to me? And so it's like transporting people back to that time. Is that all right? <laughs> they have a very contentious relationship. I don't know if you know. Is this We're an working on it. Thing? And so then the fact that Joaquin came out and sat next to him is a whole thing. Yeah, it's like threatening. It's, it's a very alpha thing. <laughs> it is. He's super intimidating, and territory. he's now using it. He, he did yeah. it on purpose. Space, yeah. territory. Let's, let's dig into the character, and the way we can do that, Todd, is I want to start by... Um, your, your film uses an existing story, an existing character as a foundation, but it also uh, takes them in a new direction. So I would love if you could talk about the process of interpreting, expanding on this story and this character, and, and maybe also woven into that, what draws you to that, what drew you to that, and then I'll ask 
Joaquin also the same question, but maybe start well, with Well, the, the, the idea originally came from doing really a stripped down comic book film to do to, to, to do a, a character study on, on one of these, you know, um, characters that we've seen in movies over these last 15, 20 years that have almost taken over movies to some, to some extent. And what if you actually did um, a character study on one of those characters? And to me, the logical one was Joker. He's a represents mayhem and chaos, two things I've always been somewhat attracted to, and to, to sort of break down how he got like that. And really, it was very simple for Scott Silver and I, who, who wrote the script together. It was all about running everything through as realistic a lens as possible. And, and that carried over, by the way, to production design and to cinematography and everything else. But, but back to the character of Joker, it was like, okay, what are the things we know about Joker? Well, he laughs, you know, he's this laugh in the comics or sometimes in the movies. How would he have gotten that laugh? Why is his skin white? He has green hair. Well, in the comics, he fell into a vat of acid. That didn't feel like that would happen in the real world if you felt, you know, so we go, well, what if he's a clown and he wants to, you know, so everything was just about taking the character that we knew and running it through as realistic a lens as possible. And it was actually a fun kind of backwards engineering project for us when we were writing it. Um, you know, giving him this affliction for the laughter or giving him, you know, the the clown or the, you know. There was a lot there was a lot of things that informed him, but you know, ultimately there's childhood trauma, which is not necessarily a new idea. There's a lack of love, which is not a new idea. There's Gotham, which represents this sort of loss of empathy. Um, all these things that kind of to us would would sort of build this character. I mean, really, Joaquin, really the same question, but from your perspective, and that might be, I assume, the conversation that you had when Todd calls you up or sends you an email or whatever and says, hey, I've got you in mind for for this. I'm imagining it started something like that. But I gotta be honest, I wasn't listening to you, but I don't know what, I don't know what the question was. When you, when you first asked the question, I was not listening. He's, he, you have to understand when when he sees Larry, he sees red. So he's lost in a fog. Larry alone, really. Larry's Larry. like, taking way too much of a beating, and it's not fair. So the idea of of but Larry, shut the fuck up. Copy. The, the sorry, idea. I don't mean to be rude. I, I, re I really was just dreaming. The the idea of of exploring this this alternate version this interpreted reimagined version of this character this character's been out in the world and and the idea of not only reinterpreting it but but why him why now why you why i don't know I just, i'm still not sure what you're asking um but i can't hold in my stomach any longer so i'm going to i'm going to have to i'm going to have to call it a night for myself here Oh, thank stop. you so much. Don't even do this. What are you doing? <laughs> but it's so much fun. He loves... Okay, well, sorry, what, what is the question? How, how did I... I'm curious about the first conversations you two had and what... You were getting a real look first... at what it's like every day. <laughs> no, this is so much fun. <laughs> it's a pretty good look. It's a pretty good look of day to day. Look. Um, the first... Before I even read the script... Yeah. Todd showed me videos of people that had these fits of laughter, these uncontrollable fits of laughter. And you know, obviously the Joker laugh is iconic and I think everybody kind of imagines what, what it is or what it should be like. And I thought that it was uh, a really smart way of, of approaching that laugh. And I think that probably 
informed the way that I researched the character and, and how we created it. Um, I mean, just really to echo what Todd said, it was really yeah. to approach it in, in the most realistic way possible. Um, so that it was that was I, I watched those videos and then I read the script, um, and then just began a kind of endless uh, conversations between Todd and I, and and then when I went to New York with Scott Silver, the co-writer as well. Um, and that was really the, a big part of the process. There's a lot of stuff that I did on my own, but it's just so fucking boring that I'm not going to uh, trouble you guys with it. <laughs> um, so I hope that answered the question. It does. Thank you. <laughs> this, this character that, that you and Scott wrote, this character that Joaquin embodies, um, adults see him one way, Kids see him a different way, right? Like he 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 moves through the world um, with these this, this kind of dichotomy. Um, and I, just speaking for myself, I was so drawn in by this this character, just so drawn in by the world that he's navigating, uh, the 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 laughter that becomes like a heaving, like the, the this it becomes it becomes so visceral that it's almost like he it's not just laughter, but it becomes like this this gasping for air. At least that's how I. Yeah, it was pain. how I took it. Yeah, yeah, this sure. this pain, and that that was uh, that was so uh, dramatic as an audience member. I just felt so drawn in um, by this by this character. Um, what what were the challenges, I guess, of of drawing or imagining or portraying both drawing and imagining, but also portraying this character? I I mean, uh, I mean, there's there's a, uh, this is a tough one. What are the challenges of drawing and imagining? I mean, again, it was. It's not that there was one particular thing. It's a, it's a little bit about figuring out, I mean, like any screenplay, when you sit down, what does he want? What is he looking for? You know, the movie opens with him in the mirror doing this smile and this frown, and you realize, you know, this is a guy searching for identity, and that was a big part of the movie. It's a guy who is searching for a father figure. He sees it in Murray Franklin on TV. He sees it with Thomas Wayne when he feels like there might be a connection. Um, all these things are kind of embedded in it, but... One of the things that also informed it was the line between comedy and tragedy. Um, and, you know, having done comedies most of my life, worked with some amazing comedians, there really is a fine line between comedy and tragedy. So many of it comes, so much of it comes from a dark place, I think, with with actual comedians and comics that that was interesting to Scott and I is just sort of exploring this thing is, is my life a comedy or is it a tragedy? how adults see me as a tragedy, how kids see me as a comedy, but really um, it's both for, for Arthur and for ultimately Joker. But I think that answers a, a yeah. little bit of the themes and things yeah. that we, we kind of struggled with, or not struggled, but that we attempted to, to deal with. Yeah. Um, Emma, you were with us on opening night. Welcome back. Producer of The Irishman. It's insane. She produced The Irishman. <laughs> crazy. She produced The Irishman, produced The Joker in the same year. It's amazing. It's amazing. I don't know. <laughs> tell us Tell us about shooting in New York. Shooting in New York. Wow. Uh, the best city in the world to shoot in. Had the best, I mean, I had the best crew. A lot of you are in here, I believe. A lot of you supported uh, Todd and Joaquin and I and Mark and Larry, um, hard city to shoot in, both very difficult movies to, to 
accomplish, but I'm so proud of both of them. I don't know what to say, Eugene. I love them both. I, I'm so torn between the two of them. I love you, and I love them both. He and to I know. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just saying. I'm. I'm. I'm so proud to be here, and so uh, this movie. Uh, New York, the best city to shoot in, the best city to work in, the best crew. Todd, I love you, Joaquin, Larry, Mark. But amazing. I'll say just quickly about Emma. Is oh No, but she's just a bit of a gangster in New York, and she doesn't like to speak about herself. But no, I don't. The crew that's here knows she's respected in a way by the people you have to make deals with, whether it's the MTA or the closing down the street with the cops or that street. Emma just has the best relationships, not to mention the crew she works with, obviously granted through Marty, it's just the A-plus crew in New York. So we had all the best people working on this film, thanks to Emma's relationship, so. And, and true that. And just to put it on the record, I mean, you were shooting, you were shooting in a variety of places outside of New York, but when you were in New York, where were you, where were you shooting? Help us uh, draw a picture of where you were. Oh my God, Mark, where weren't we? we? Yeah, exactly. Mark knows. Uh, I don't remember. I mean, we shot in the Bronx. Yeah. We shot in the yeah. Bronx. Sorry. Yeah, we actually looked a long time to try to figure out uh, Arthur's neighborhood. Uh, you started in the South Bronx. We went through every borough, every bad neighborhood, and we ended up back on those stairs in the South Bronx. We shot Ha-Ha's in Harlem, um, up near the uh, West Side Highway. We shot in Chinatown. Um, we built a lot on our stage. Uh, Gotham Square was in Newark. Um, which ironically gave us our best vision of that part of New York. Uh, it's, it's the last bit of it uh, that's left. So. Mark, can you talk a bit more about just the components of designing this world, whether on location or whether interior, you know, just some of the, the elements and the aspects that you were kind of most focused on? Well, one of the challenges for me was that I'm not a comic person, um, and I sort of, I'm a cinema person, and that's ironically what was my hesitation about joining the team initially, just because it was called Joker, and I had done a Spider-Man, and it wasn't really for me, and when I finally cracked the script, script, yeah, by the end of, you know, I think before I even finished, I had the phone out, and um, uh, it was, yeah, it's very much about uh, this place in a way that I understand, the place that I was formed in, in a lot of ways, the, the part of the, uh, the rubble of the city is what I grew out of. I don't know how I would do in this version of it. My, my son is here today, I'll, we, can, we can ask him. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was about, you know, I think in the, in the very first page, you write the stakes are real, and, I, and that was for me the, a key, uh, trying to find a version uh, of that city. It's ironic because when you actually look at the pictures of that, that time, they don't look real. We don't remember what New York looked like back then. There was garbage on the street. There was graffiti on every wall. The trains, you couldn't even find the doors on. Uh, so, uh, so it was about trying to find a style that wasn't stylized. Um, one of the things I, I said to Larry early on is I think the movie should look like every, that there's not a light in there, that it was lit practically by every lamp. And that's what he did. He took the fixtures that we put on the set or we chose them together and, uh, and he wired them in such a way that he was able to turn them into movie lights. And the mm -hmm. movie was essentially lit on set, uh, which also meant that we could just keep shooting and keep moving. But it gave, it, it gave the story uh, a gravitas, a reality, something that we can touch on. And it's ironic, I think, that people are reacting to this movie because they go to a comic movie expecting a, a not reality, an escape. And here we are saying, no, actually, this is 
what this looks like. This is what this world looks like. This is what violence looks like. This is what mental illness looks like. This is what a city in decay looks like. Look at it. Feel it. And, 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 today and in a way, uh, what's hard about this movie is what's great about this movie. Yeah, yeah and it goes back to your original yeah. question about where we, am I surprised where the discourse has gone? That's the surprising thing for me is, to me, I thought, isn't that a good thing to put real-world implications on violence? Isn't it a good thing to take away the cartoon element of violence that we've become so immune to? So I was a little surprised when it turns into that direction that it seems irresponsible, because to me it seems actually very responsible mm -hmm. to f make it feel real and make it have weight and implications. And, and we're just about to wrap up, but kind of a similar question for Larry, because I want to make sure we look at kind of the other part of that. And, and Larry or Larry, um, maybe we could talk about how you arrived at the look of the film, the, the conversations that you and Todd had about, about that. Uh, it's a process. It's a process, and it keeps moving more than any movie. And I've done six movies with Todd over 10 years. And he has a lovely saying, which he's always like, when people are trying to get real technical or whatever it is, he's like, movies aren't math, man, they're jazz. And it's like, he doesn't say it like that, but I, I, I like to that. hear it like that. He says it better. He so makes you heard me sound it. like the big Lebowski. Yeah, exactly. I like it. He's like, he's like real. But, uh, and, and I think this movie, in the most exciting way, the look is, is, is part of the look is this improvisational thing. And I think... It's actually a question I have for Todd and Joaquin because I'm curious because obviously I've worked with Todd so long and I know about this thing that he does wonderfully, which is like tons of preparation. Yeah. We think about things, we plan things out, and then we throw it all out. Yeah. And so because of that, all the preparation is still in there. The idea, we had this whole thing about shadows that Todd said is like, if you think about the character as we all have our shadows and what if your shadow was actually the real part of you? And you're like, the, the, the guy standing next to the shadow is the fake you. The real guy is this dark thing underneath you. So we tried playing with stuff like that. But the most fun thing about making this movie and the most exciting and scary and torturous at times was the fluidity at which we made the movie, um, which was it was constantly being made and evolving as we made it in real time. And that went from photographing scenes where we'd walk in and they'd go, eh, Screw what we even talked about, wrote about. We got a new idea. Let's just try it. And that was so fun and really exciting. My question for you two guys, and this is genuine, really <laughs> is, which is you shoot a movie out of order. Be careful. Yeah. Right? You shoot a movie out of order. It's the nature of it. You could shoot a movie in order. Right. But in this case, Arthur and Joker are so different, obviously, in, in building a character. We, on this movie, for various reasons, like most movies, did a little bit of both early in the movie. And it helped inform both characters, right? And you had to think about Arthur somewhat differently having then become Joker for a week or two. My question to you both, would you do it differently? Because of, you know, where, where it ended up is in large part because we did it in that order. Yeah. But had you had a chance to do it in chronological order, would you have chosen to do it I that would, way? I, would, I remember when we went in for... <clears throat> We went in for an early makeup test, and I was under the impression that we were going to shoot in in order. And uh, and Tal said, "No, it's it's absolutely impossible." I said, "Well, no, we got to figure out a way because I'm not Joker till the end." And um, 
I, I think that it's wrong to, I don't think I can, I can do that. And he said, well, there's absolutely no choice. We have to shoot it. I think it was the it was actually sixth, sixth There was no week? choice because, you know, De Niro was only yeah. available those right. nine or eight days that we had him, so that wasn't going to move. And it was, right. you're right, fifth week in, I think we were shooting Murray. Sixth. Maybe earlier. Okay. Oh, you <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, but, but you're right. Um, now when I look back on it, I'm so grateful right. that we did that um, because I think, Playing Joker, Joker did inform uh, how we approached Arthur, and I think we really um, had kind of a somewhat radical reinterpretation of the of the character after after we we spent that week doing Joker. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wouldn't change it, but I think that happens more often than not. Like when people ask, when an AD asks me, like, is there a scene that you prefer to shoot first? Um, I usually say, you know, whatever it is, it's the right, the right thing. Because um, I feel like every movie that I make, I look back and I say, thank goodness that we did that scene. I know. Well, Todd and I always marvel at the scenes that we change at the last minute, change location, all the things that f fuck up Emma's job and Mark's job and <laughs> run them ragged. Like, no, Nightmare. no, no, we're doing this and we're changing everything. We always afterwards go, oh my God, what if we didn't realize it? What if we realized it the next week? We'd be screwed. Yeah. Like, so it does yeah. feel like sometimes it's meant to be, I guess. You're really good at this, by the oh, way. Really? No, You're it doing was. great. But it's a great question. I think this is meant was. to be. No, I've been thinking about it ever since yeah. because the movie's so, it evolved as we were making it. And I love it, but I think it was like 2.0 version from what Todd and I have certainly done over yeah, the course of five movies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think you guys have settled your issues here. All yeah, I think we've, we've made a lot of progress. Larry, Joaquin, Mark, Emma, Todd. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you so yeah. much. Thank, thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.